Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're at the end of that chapter, uh, page 962 in those black hardcover Bibles is where you'll find today's text. Uh, Christians are people of the already and the not yet. We live between the first and the second appearings of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his first appearing, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus accomplished our salvation. And this is the already that we live in. But Jesus will come again. As we confess each week in the Apostles' Creed, from the right hand of the Father, he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is his second appearing, and this is the not yet that we anticipate. In this tension of the already and the not yet, Christians tend to either over-realize or under-realize what Jesus has accomplished. And when we do, it leads to triumphalism on the one hand, or a despondency or despair on the other. So triumphalism is, is all victory all the time. Jesus is raised from the dead, so everything's good, nothing is ever wrong, and when it is, when suffering or hardship happen, the only category that we have left to explain that is that we don't have enough faith, that we need to claim a better reality for ourselves. Triumphalism is a lie. It assumes that if we have enough faith, we can somehow avoid the suffering that Jesus experienced that he told his followers coming after him that they would also experience. Triumphalism over-realizes the resurrection. It, it forgets that God in Christ is still reconciling the world to himself, is still making all things new. There's still much to be done. My favorite example of the folly of triumphalism uh, came about a, a decade ago. Uh, on a Sunday morning, I was watching the news in Kansas City, uh, and I was watching about for snow cancellations. There was a, a church in the Kansas City metro area, and the name of the church was Church Triumphant World Overcomers. And the irony, the delicious irony as it flashed up on the screen, to see the words Church Triumphant World Overcomers, all services canceled. World, we got that. We're overcoming the world. But the snow... Not so much. We'll get them next week. We'll get them next week. Now, on the other hand, that's triumphalism. On the other hand, despondency underrealizes the resurrection. It forgets that a real cosmic victory has already been accomplished. That yes, the, the full realization of that is future, but there is a present experience of that victory that we can and should walk in now. There may be a few of us in the room who are inclined to triumphalism. There might be not perhaps because we as a church are not afraid of despondency. We, we work really hard as a community of people to fight against the, the pretense and the crazy kinds of fakery and insincerity that, that exist and tend to exist in groups of Christians. But for whatever the reason, I think we are a far more despondency-prone group of people. It's hard for me to imagine a day where we would introduce um, some new idea or some new initiative, and that I would have to then be like, whoa, everyone, slow down. Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's still more to be done. 
I've never had to do that at Liberty Church. And, and I'm grateful for realism. Uh, I'm grateful for questions and challenges that come, even when they come from a cynical or skeptical place. Because when those questions come, they bring a sharpening and a clarity to, to who we are and to what we're doing. But I want to, and I've reflected on this a lot preparing for sabbatical, I want to live and to worship and to labor with a group of people who are characterized by more joy, by more security in Jesus than insecurity stemming from whatever it stems from, by more compassion that flows from mercy-filled, mercy-shaped hearts than, as we confess sometimes in a prayer of confession, than our overly calculated, overly cautious efforts to serve Jesus. Attitude reflects leadership. Church culture reflects leadership. And so this morning, I own the lion's share of that. Far too often, I function and live and lead from a place that looks a lot more like despondency. In describing my experience of of planting a church and pastoring a church these almost eight years now, um, confidence and joy are not words that I use a lot in that description. Far more often, I am plagued by the question, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? And is all of this effort, is all the labor that I and others are putting in, is it, is it actually accomplishing something? Among other things, despondency is under-realizing what the resurrection has accomplished. And so together this morning, I want us to, whether that's for the first time for you or for the thousandth time for you, to consider the resurrection of Jesus and his people and seeing it for all that it is, all that it means for both. moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. You join me as I pray for us. Our Father in heaven, compel us this morning simply to take you at your word. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. Do not let us leave here this morning without being caught up by the promises and the powerful joy of your word. And we pray this for our sake, Father, and for those whom we love. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've been in this, this chapter for the last several weeks. As Paul now concludes this great chapter about the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and ours, he highlights three things here. The mystery of the resurrection, the eternal victory of the resurrection, and the everyday victory of the resurrection. And we'll look just briefly at each of those. So first, the mystery of the resurrection. Last week, we looked at the resurrection of our bodies, how, how bodily resurrection is part of our salvation. And it's because God's power to redeem, to restore what is good, is infinitely greater than sin's power to corrupt, God will not leave us in the dust when we die. One day our graves will be empty. God will raise us up. And verse 50 picks up where that left off. Our perishable flesh and blood cannot, will not, inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. Our natural physical bodies, affected and corrupted by sin as they are, they are not suited for this eternal, imperishable environment and purpose to live forever with God. And so like Jesus, though there's continuity between our natural body and our resurrected body, there's, there's also discontinuity. There's also transformation. That we are not, when we rise again, just revived corpses, but we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now for people who die, which is most of us, that's great news. That's great news, but there's more to the story. And Paul here tells the Corinthians a mystery. A mystery. Mystery is a word that Paul uses often in his letters. And most of the time, including here, it doesn't mean something that's completely unknowable. It instead means something which was previously hidden and which would have remained hidden had not God chosen to reveal something. And through the person and work of Jesus, he reveals mysteries, things that were once long hidden but are now knowable and known. And one such mystery, as Paul says here, not everyone is going to die. C.S. Lewis famously once wrote, 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be increased. That's our reality, yes? That's our reality, except at the last day except at the second appearing of Jesus. There are some who will never experience death. And this might be, if you've been around the church for a while, this might be so familiar that you cease to be astonished by it. But it's yet another testament to the scope of the power of the resurrection. That God is so powerful that the death and resurrection of Jesus is so effective that it breaks the formula that the death itself dies. For the people of God who are still alive, when Jesus appears, when he comes again, death is not a prerequisite for entry into the kingdom of God. 
There's no need for them to die anymore. There is, however, still a need to be changed. The perishable flesh and blood cannot inherit the imperishable. And so the other side of this mystery, the other part of it, is that even those of us, even those who don't die, will experience the same kind of transformation of the body. From perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from these mortal bodies to immortality. Paul writes about this in a little more detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. And all of this, as he says here, all of this is instantaneous. It's in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ are raised, and those who are still alive at that time are transformed. So think about this. Think about how much time and energy we pour into extending our lives by a few minutes or weeks or years. We spend decades trying to add a minute to our lives. The resurrection, the transformation, that takes a millisecond and it lasts forever. Earlier in his life in ministry, Paul writes like he expects Jesus to return during Paul's lifetime. As Paul aged, though, as we get to books like 1 and 2 Timothy, like we just studied a couple months ago, his perspective on that starts to change. Ultimately, here's the point, Paul never knew or predicted a date. And most importantly, because he didn't know if, he didn't know when, he lived in this constant kind of anticipation of it, that Jesus might come back today. And oh, that he would, is would have been Paul's attitude throughout his life. He esteemed the victory of the resurrection both eternally and in a way that impacted his everyday life. And so second, let's talk about that, the eternal victory of the resurrection. On any given day, we are inundated by a thousand defeats. On a broad level, you see that in the news every single week, school shootings, a lack of care and protection for the unborn, a lack of care and stewardship for the environment. Or on a personal level, we see that. Addictions, ailing bodies, the stresses and anxieties of our jobs, of our families, of our friends. All of these are real. All of these are overwhelming. But we must never forget that these are all symptoms. These are all symptoms. The real disease, the deepest problem that we face is the problem of sin. That we have rejected and rebelled against the God who made us for himself. And that our sin, individually and collectively, it's why God's good creation is so fractured and so corrupted. It's why these thousands of other problems and defeats exist. And addressing only the symptoms, caring only about the presenting problems as overwhelming as they are, that would be for us like playing whack-a-mole, where you knock a couple down, but there's one or two that pop up right in its place. Or since it's springtime, and we've probably all been outside working in gardens, for those of you who do that, it's like, it's like tearing off the top of the weed without actually pulling out the root. It's, and it's going to come back if we do that. Sin is a cosmic, eternal problem. A cosmic, eternal defeat. Sin is pervasive. It affects absolutely everything. And because it's an act of rebellion against an eternal God, its consequences are likewise eternal. The enmity, the alienation that it creates between God and humanity, that will carry into eternity and forever separate us from God. Unless, unless sin is actually dealt with. This cosmic eternal disease 
requires a cosmic eternal remedy. And this is what the resurrection secures. Jesus triumphs over death, and he accomplishes in that our salvation from sin. In verse 56, Paul unpacks this some. He says, the sting of death is sin. In other words, death exists as the ultimate consequence of sin. If there had been no sin, there would likewise be no death. And on top of that, sin is what makes death as painful and horrible as it is. Death, the image that Paul is creating here, death is an animal. Death is like a scorpion. And the venom, the poison in the stinger is sin. What is it that gives that poison its potency? What is it that gives a, that poison its power? It's the law. So Paul says the law, the law defines, it exposes our sin. It shows us how we have created this enmity between God and us. The law also increases sin. And Paul explains a lot more about that in the book of Romans. Because now knowing the design and purposes of God, that will either lead us to try and earn our own salvation by keeping it, or it will activate the rebellious nature inside of us and we'll run the other way. An author named Gordon Fee puts it this way, says the law, which is good, functions as the agent of sin because it either leads to pride or achievement on the one hand, or reveals the depths of one's depravity and rebellion against God on the other. And he goes on to say this, in either case, in either case, it becomes death-dealing instead of life-giving. Since the law can't deal with the eternal problem of our sin, we need another, better remedy. And this church, this is why Jesus Christ came into the world. This is why Jesus Christ died. This is why Jesus Christ conquered death in rising from the dead. Jesus demonstrates he's not only dealt with the ultimate symptom, but he's dealt with the disease. He's not merely dealt with the weed. He's pulled the roots out. And as he's reflecting on this, Paul's mind is drawn back to the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet writes, God will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. The people of God have long been awaiting the day when God will swallow up death forever. When death itself, the ultimate consequence of sin, our final enemy itself will die. And so you and I might understandably lament the 2,000 years or so that have passed since the first appearing of Christ. But think about this, Paul and his contemporaries had also been waiting for centuries since Isaiah originally penned that prophecy. It remains today for us a future event. It is when the mortal puts on immortality, then this shall come to pass. Though this remains a future realization, it is so sure, it is so fixed that Paul here in this text stares death and stares sin in the eyes, and he mocks them. He mocks them. He sings a victory song. It's like a cosmic rendition of We Are the Champions. Boasting as only one can who knows that though the battle rages, the victory has been definitively secured. The eternal disease of sin has been overcome by the infinitely more powerful eternal remedy of Jesus' salvation, and he erupts in a doxology, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. 
And so lastly, let's talk about the everyday victory of the resurrection. Verse 57 is a perfectly natural place to end this text. That's the the peak of the crescendo. After you sing, we are the champions, you're not supposed to get back up on the microphone and say, oh yeah, one more thing, by the way. But the one more thing is so essential. After rejoicing in the eternal victory, Paul redirects our attention to everyday life, to the practical implications, the outworking of the victory of the resurrection. And this is something Paul does in other letters too. He, he rebukes many Christians for being idle, for just sitting around waiting for the return of Jesus. Because the resurrection, this eternal victory of the Son of God and the promise that he will raise us up as well, that's meant to have the opposite effect. We've said it before here at this church that Christians are sometimes accused of being so heavenly minded, so eternally minded that we're of no earthly value. But in reality, Christians are to be so eternally minded, so heavenly minded, that we are of utmost earthly value, of all earthly value. Scripture's emphasis is that we are to to fix our eyes on eternity and be faithful and persistent and fruitful in all of our labors in the present until we either die or until Christ comes again. So in verse 58, Therefore, in light of all this, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable. Remember that he is writing to a church where there are many who are skeptical and doubtful about the resurrection. But it's so unbelievable for them as it is for us and many today. It's so even for first century people undesirable that there's immense pressure to deny this. And Paul says, don't. Stand firm. Hold to these things of first importance. Hang your life on the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. If he has not been raised, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied. For the same reason that you and I are prone to despondency, we're prone to become easily discouraged, easily offended, easily persuaded. Like ships without an anchor, we're prone to be tossed to and fro in the winds and the waves of every kind of teaching, every kind of novelty, every kind of fad that emerges from our culture. And that's been true in each and every generation. The eternal victory of Jesus makes us steadfast in the everyday. The cosmic defeat of sin and death makes us courageous in the everyday. It gives us present confidence of our ultimate future reality, that we will either die and be raised to life, or we will live on till that day and we will be changed. I will never encourage you to be someone who over-realizes this, who pretends that you're strong and courageous when you're not, who pretends that you're never fearful, cowardly, who pretends that you're always encouraged. Instead, I'm telling you that because of the resurrection, you actually can combat your fear and cowardice with strength and courage. You actually can combat your discouragement with encouragement. You actually can combat your despondency with genuine joy. And moreover, because the disease of sin has been dealt with, you and I can experience victories in the symptoms. We actually can push back what is dark in the world. We actually can put our lust, our greed, our pride to death. We can increasingly become who we are as new creations in Christ. May we never give lip service to the eternal victory of Jesus Christ while denying his power in our everyday lives. 
Paul goes then on to write, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. And work and labor here, they refer to things that we do for the sake of God and his kingdom. They refer to the kinds of activities that Christians do because they are Christians. Ministry, service, mission, sharing the gospel with both our words and our lives. Pursuing each other relationally for other people's growth in Christ. Using the gifts that God has given us to build one another up. We get to use our lives for such things. We get to use our lives for such things. That's an amazing reality. So why does Paul then feel the need to remind us this labor is not in vain? Why does he feel the need to remind us it's not in vain? Because we will constantly be tempted to think that it is. We will constantly be reminded of how hard that labor is. We will often find ourselves weary and desiring to do anything else. Some of us this morning are weary. Some of us are weary. Others of us aren't. But even if you're not, you know the feeling. Of course you do. We are flesh and blood, perishable, constantly inundated by the consequences and symptoms of sin. If you're never weary in this life, you're not paying attention. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Weariness is not the only reality. God in Christ is making all things new. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Christ will come again. And so none of our labors, especially the ones that make us weary for the sake of God and his kingdom, they are not in vain. They will be caught up into his eternal work and they will last forever. They are accomplishing something not only by the grace of God of temporal value, but of eternal value. And so our refrain must always be, I'm weary, but it's worth it. Or even better, I'm weary, but God wins. I'm weary, but God wins. Will you believe that deeply in your soul this morning? Will you cling to the truth of that even when you struggle to feel it? And I say this as a reminder to myself heading into sabbatical. There have been so many days over these past eight years where I've driven home after long hours of counsel and prayer and preaching and asking myself, what did that accomplish? Did that actually do anything of value? Is that going to last at all? And on most of those days, the best answer that I have is I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing. Even if we never see it, even if we never hear a word about it, it is not in vain. Because the faithful God who raised Jesus up, the faithful God who will not leave you and I in the dust, is the same faithful God who promises to take our labors and to make them count for his present and coming kingdom. We're rarely at risk of over-realizing the resurrection. So God forbid that we under-realize it either. We're rarely at risk of triumphalism. So let us reject the equally heinous lie of despondency and despair. Instead, let us not grow weary in doing good. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, because we will be raised from the dead. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. Oh Lord our God, you have given to us this glorious gospel 
of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, that we might gratefully share it with others. And in all of this, that we might ever give glory to you, by whose grace alone, as Paul wrote earlier in this chapter, by whose grace alone, we are what we are. Through the same Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.